Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I'm the host of the Sendcast. We started the Sendcast a few years ago as a way to help improve knowledge around SEND. There is lots of stuff to read, but we're all very busy and we don't have the time. Everyone working in schools needs training support around SEND, but the funding isn't there to achieve this. We created the Sendcast trying to help solve that problem, to help make schools more inclusive, to help teachers be teachers of SEND, and to help all the staff in school be more aware of SEND. The Sendcast is also a great way to get the same consistent message to schools and parents. Every week on the Sendcast, I have a different guest that has come along to talk about an area they are passionate about. And my guest this week is Joanna Grace. Joanna is a sensory engagement inclusion specialist. And on this week's episode, we're discussing eating and the senses. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B Squared. Over the last 25 years, B Squared have supported schools to support students with SEND. Over the last few years, we have diversified. For years, we focused on assessment, and this will always be our main focus. But we have seen a lack of high-quality, easy-to-access training and CPD for schools around SEND. Our online CPD offering, Training for Education, started a few years ago with a virtual SEND conference, but now includes a range of training courses as well as our conferences. You can find out more about our conferences and training courses by going to the Training for Education website, which is www.trainingforeducation.com. At the end of the episode, I'll be sharing an exclusive SENDcast discount code, so keep listening. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we are discussing eating and the senses. Discussing this topic with me is Joanna Grace. Joanna is a sensory engagement and inclusion specialist, doctoral researcher, author, trainer, TEDx speaker, and the founder of the Sensory Projects. Joanna has worked with people with learning disabilities and neurodivergent conditions, age from birth all the way up to a very specific 87 years old. Not even if it's 87 and three months, don't know. Welcome to the show, Joanna. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. Interesting. Do I have to put that up to 88 in a couple next year when we start doing podcasts? <laughs> no, we should, we, should, we should definitely change that. People <laughs> of all ages. People of all ages. We all watch I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, and those bushless trials which involve eating various disgusting things. Now, this is something I could never do. I can't handle eating anything slimy. One of the big ones for me is seeds in a tomato. I remember my mum giving them to me and me almost instantly vomiting. But for some people, there's, there's, there's even a lot more going on than that, isn't there? My nephew would only eat currently breadcrumbed chicken nuggets with chips or pesto pasta. But he can only eat the chicken nuggets and chips with Heinz fiery ketchup, which they've now stopped making. Oh, So he's currently not eating chicken nuggets and chips just pesto pasta and that's a challenge it's a massive it's a massive massive challenge and it's especially challenging for children who've got sensory processing differences or sensory processing disabilities and the sort of headline message is that this is not the same as fussy eating there is there is a very clear difference you know Every child, as they learn to eat, will have some foods that they like and some foods that they don't like. They may have parents that allow them to have foods they like and don't like. They may have parents who think that they ought to like all the foods. (laughs) I think sometimes fussy eating can be parents that just think that children should like all food. And we all have, you know, things that we like to eat and things that we don't like to eat. I don't like mushrooms. I would pick mushrooms off a pizza if they came out on my order. And as my first son grew up, I offered him mushrooms. I didn't, by the way, put the plate over and go, you might like some of these. I I got somebody else to serve him mushrooms when I wasn't there so that I wouldn't influence the thing. He doesn't like mushrooms. He like, it's fine. If you don't like it, you don't have to eat it. But when it's, you know, you don't like everything and you're trying to have a little power play with your parents and no, I'm not going to eat my dinner. That's one type of thing, isn't it? That's a you know, here's a situation I can control. And dinner time is a very good place to try and wrangle a bit of control back if you're a small child and you're feeling out of control. So we get issues around eating that are control-based. And the 
these are not what we're talking about today, but the way to tackle those is just to build up the control that children have in other areas. So the opportunity to cook the dinner and to help and to feel an active part of it generally solves those. You get people who are fussy eaters, and I don't mean to be dismissive of fussy eating, you're it's perfectly challenging in and of itself, but it's not a sensory issue. It's just to do with preferences and feeling safe and all of that. Maybe it is a sensory issue. <laughs> Let's try and keep it as two separate things. Fussy eating, power play sort of stuff, and the sensory content of your food being an issue for you, which it sounds very much like it is for you and tomato seeds. That definitely sounded like a that's not you thinking, oh, I'm going to show my mum that I'm not going to eat tomato seeds, is it? That's quite clearly something different there. And it becomes, when I do when I do training around the senses, so like I do a day that's exploring the impact of the senses on behaviour, and I do another day that's about the development of the sensory systems, as soon as you get to questions, it's one of the first things that somebody will ask is, there's a child at my school who's only eating bread or they're, they're only eating chips, or my son, daughter, my offspring won't eat. You know, and it's the way that that question is asked. There's a very particular feeling to that question. You know, I get asked lots of questions about the senses. You know, why does he react to loud noises? Why, why won't he brush his teeth? But that food question gets asked with a certain emotion attached to it. And it's a really sort of primal concern. It's a visceral fear. Because somewhere at the back of that is a parent who has a child. You know, they, they gave birth to this child or they, they chose this child if it's an adopted child. They have this exceptionally precious child and they need it to eat because they want it to live. This question is so big because, because food is what keeps you alive. And so it's very difficult to be sort of casual about that. Oh, by the way, I know this kid who just doesn't eat stuff. And that's curious, isn't it? That's not how it gets asked. It's like they're not eating. So they're not eating and I need to know, you know, why they're not eating. And if you take it back a few steps and think about those sensory processing differences or disabilities that we were talking about, if you are processing sensory information differently, it's like you've got volume controls on your senses. And as you turn them up, the sensation gets bigger. And as you turn them down, it gets smaller. If you're somebody whose volume controls on their senses are all turned up so that all the sensation is too much for you, imagine if you were to be asked to touch something you really didn't like. So the volume control on your sense of touch is whacked up so high that touching stuff is just horrible. And I'm going to ask you to touch some sort of slimy, sticky, gooey, sludgy, horrible stuff. If you were going to do that, you would position yourself such that your body was really, really far away from the stuff. You would extend your arm, you would stretch your finger out, you'd curl all your other fingers back. Because if you've got to touch this stuff, you're only going to put the like the furthest away bit of yourself. You're going to hold all your body tense and you're going to have your finger far, far away and you just touch it just a little bit. And then you very quickly bring your finger back to safety, away from the yucky stuff. When I ask you to eat, I don't ask you to touch something with your finger your finger has a lot of nerve endings on it. Your mouth, your tongue, your lips have so many more. So it's not, a, it's not a level of touch with your finger. It's already much more touch that I'm asking of you. I'm not asking you to do that far away from yourself. I'm not even asking you to do that up close to yourself. I'm, ask, I'm not even asking you to do it close to your face, which like if I gave you a choice, would you like to touch the sticky, yucky stuff on your knee or would you like to touch it on your face? You would go knee before you... I'm not even asking you to touch it on your face. I'm literally asking you to touch it in your face. It's so invasive. And at the same time as I'm asking you to have that touch experience in your face, <laughs> I'm also asking you to have a smell experience. And the same thing, if there was a horrible smell, you would go far away from it. You would sniff it quickly and you would run away. You would not put it in your face. I'm asking you to taste in your face and I'm asking you to listen <laughs> in your face and the sounds of eating we mentioned this on the last podcast they're sounds that we ordinarily tune out so we use the volume controls that we have on our senses and the capabilities that we have to operate them to pick which sounds like to tune into particular sounds in the environment and to tune out from other sounds in the environment and if you can't do that tuning 
you hear all the sounds in the environment and there's a lot more sounds going on than you realize and that's actually an experience that a lot of people who um, start to wear hearing aids can testify to because hearing aids amplify all the sound and when you first put your hearing aids on the world's just too noisy and it's not that things have got louder it's that you haven't got the filtering anymore because you're hearing the kettle click off and the person shuffling their feet and the voices and you're hearing it all at a sort of equal level and you have to wear your hearing aids for a bit before you can regain that skill of tuning to listen to the voices and to listen to the you know the marker sounds and to not listen to the other stuff and you think about where we eat your 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 mouth is really close to your ears of course you hear the noises and if i were to be really vulgar i could i could eat down the microphone couldn't i could go get an apple and like crunch the apple off and chew it up for you these are not pleasant sounds these aren't sounds that any of us enjoy and when I ask you to eat, I'm asking you to experience these sounds, not at a distance, not at a low volume in your face. And then I'm asking you to do all of these things at the same time. So in terms of a sensory challenge, eating is just about the most horrific thing you could imagine because you're being asked to do everything all at once with no security of distance, not even proxy literally in one of the most private parts of your body in your face so it's already very very scary if you are somebody who struggles with sensory differences or sensory processing difficulties disorders it's likely that you have somebody in your life that understands that that gets it even if they don't fully understand everything they've just got a feel for you and so they're the person who, when you get stressed at the party, takes you outside. Or they're the person who lets you stay in the car when they go into the supermarket. Because even if they don't understand why you find those things stressful, they still understand, they still feel for you. It's normally your mum. They care for you and they protect you. And in this situation of eating, it's them that does it to you. And so not only are you faced with all of these horrific sensory challenges you also face them alone because the one person that you ordinarily rely on to defend you and to protect you is the person who does it to you and so it's a massive massive deal eating and it's why that question always comes up with so much emotion attached to it it's because it's, it's a life and death thing i'd never thought of it is that it, that trusting person is the person trying to get you to eat and do the thing you really don't want to. And I think um the podcast ages, I think with Sarah Jane Critchley is home is your safe place. That is your safe person. That is the person who who hopefully shouldn't push you and shouldn't challenge you too much because that's your safeness. Yeah, in this situation. It's the loneliest thing. They're the person trying to get you to eat because you need to eat. But yeah, wow. So the next part of the question is: so what do you do about it? because they do have to eat, don't they? And there are lots of different ways of approaching this. Um, the first thing is to recognise that if they are eating something, even if it is just, you know, McDonald's chips or whatever it is, it counts. You know, they're eating something, they are surviving, you know, if they're taking in fluids, super <laughs> great. Um, <laughs> you are likely to be in a situation where they have already learned that meal times are a danger zone, that knives and forks mean scary stuff, <laughs> you know. So if you want to start to tackle it, you want to do it as far away from those situations as you can, because you don't need to borrow any of the scariness of those situations for the activities that you're doing. It can also be worth recognising that if you are the person for whom this matters the most, if you are the parent that loves that child and, and wants them to eat so that they survive, and that is no bad thing to be, that's absolutely who you should be if you're the parent, it might be easier for somebody else to do this. Because when you're sort of there with them thinking, I hope they eat the mashed potato, I hope they eat the mashed potato, that feeling that you have of all that, you know, hope and anxiety and worry for them radiates off you and, and it gets picked up on. We pick up on the emotions of others in lots of, it doesn't matter if you sort of sit there with a smiley face and, you know, lean back and act all casual, like, yeah, I don't care if you eat the mashed potato or not, because you do care. 
And if you do care, it'll come across, doesn't matter how much. So actually, it's one of the odd situations where like a bit not such good support in an education setting can help. So if you've got a, like a, a teaching assistant who isn't really fussed about whether the child eats or not, it's more chance in a weird way of them being the person alongside whom the child thinks, well, you know, maybe I will taste this mashed potato because, you know, nothing else to do around here. I might just give it a shot. Um, so away from the food setup situation, possibly away from the people who who might carry those emotional things into it. And then think of it in terms of the separate sensory challenges that it represents. Because that asking you to do it all at once is massive. And I used to be a teacher in a school for children with complex special educational needs and disabilities. And several of the students in my class had issues around eating. Um, and their parents would be very concerned about whether they'd eaten at school. Rightly so, because they need to know if this child has gone the whole day, you know, without eating, without drinking, then it's even more important that they get their evening meal into them than if we've managed to get you know two crackers and six sips of drink into them during the day and I had one child who um they were making the decision about whether she would need to be tube fed if she couldn't eat reliably then she was going to have to be tube fed so it's really big high stakes situations and the messaging that goes back and forth between teachers and parents is have they eaten yes or no and it becomes a binary thing and if you think about the other challenges that these children face, we are very used to narratives of small steps of progress. You know, they got they managed a little extra bit today. And so what you want to do is to create not that binary yes or no of whether they've eaten or not. You want to be looking for these small steps of progress that you can make and asking them to do all of those sensory things all at the same time, all in their face. It's like... It's like starting with algebra to teach maths, isn't it? It's like, it's just massive. So we got to figure out what are the component parts. So maybe one of the component parts of eating is hearing the sounds of eating. So we don't have to do that whilst we're eating. We don't have to be touching stuff whilst we hear the sounds of eating. You could literally just record yourself eating something and play that sound. You know, they have heard the sound of eating three times today. They managed to listen to the sound of eating today, you know, without feeling stressed. They were quite happy to colour in whilst they listened to the sound of eating today. We've got used to listening to the sound of eating. This is a step towards being able to cope with the sound of your own eating, because we can't assume that we could teach you to filter that noise out. But we could, assume, we could you know, we could get creative. We could make the sound of eating be, um, you know, the sound of the party is the story and the, you know, the fun thing. You could you could associate it with something positive and, and make it into an enjoyable sound. And then textures. We we used to have a pottery in our school. And I started there as an NQT. And I was an NQT who had a lot of background experience with people with learning disabilities, but I was still very, very new and I didn't understand what was going on. And we had this small school that was massively overpopulated with students. And those students came with wheelchairs and standing frames and, you know, walkers and all these bits of equipment. We had no storage. We used to have to store the standing frames across the fire exits. We were, you know, we were a health and safety nightmare because there was just no space for all the stuff, especially if you've got an indoor wheelchair and an outdoor wheelchair. And yet in our tiny school with no storage, we had an entire room dedicated to pottery and we employed a potter full time and I remember asking the head teacher when she was stressed about storage and where were we going to put the you know the standing frames and all of that because it was always them because they were across one particular fire exit and we knew that that's not how you're supposed to deal with fire exits we were like where else can we put them I was like well why why have we got a pottery why don't we just get rid of the pottery and put all of those standing frames in there because it seemed a bit like a you know, like a little niche artisan like we've got craft materials in class we've got paints and like we could do clay and, and she's like no we have to have the pottery that's where they learn to eat no, well, they're, not, they're not eating clay and it was the touch it was a it was a space totally disassociated from the dinner hall there's no knives and well there probably were forks for making pet textures in clay but it wasn't an eating based context but it was a place in which they felt 
those weird, sticky, runny, textured sensations. They felt them on their fingers first, because if you can learn to cope with a sensation in a less sensitive part of the body, then that's a stepping stone to be able to cope with it in your mouth. And if you do get a bit of clay in your mouth, it's not the end of the world. And you think, oh, gosh, yeah, that makes sense. That's why that room was there is so that we had the opportunity to feel those textures. So if you think about that progressional narrative, you're like, Bob heard the sound of eating three times a day. Bob touched textures that are similar to, because I would be so cautious with starting off with food. I mean, if you can, like if, if you've got children who are happy to, you know, model with mashed potato, <laughs> smash, that's what you need from the 1980s, <laughs> you know, and play with pasta in a, in a tray. But children are not daft. They quite quickly suss out, hang on a minute, this is food. Food is dangerous. I'm not touching this stuff. You want to start as far towards the easy end of this scale as you can. So you're touching different textures and you're building up. And you can see you could do the same. You could smell different flavors. You can even isolate the taste away from the texture and the sound. So I do that by using um, pipettes, just little you do it with straws and you just get drops of flavor and you can drop a drip onto somebody's tongue and it will coat their tongue. They'll get the flavor that's in that, whatever you've put in it. They don't have to chew. There's no texture associated with that. You know, there's no sound associated with that. They just get to taste the flavor. And so you build all of these little things up in steps and it takes, you know, a monumentally long time it takes longer than it takes your neighbor's child to learn to eat. But if you're heading in the right direction, that's a lot more reassuring. You know, meanwhile, they're surviving off McDonald's chips or whatever it is. But you're going somewhere. If you, if you go for the, okay, here's your McDonald's chips, but you can only have them if you eat this carrot first. I can understand why you would do that. And if it works, great but there is a real risk that that just keeps that sort of scariness of food alive that this is a situation in which people put me under pressure this is a situation in which the person I normally trust isn't standing on the same side as me they're standing opposite me and you can perpetuate a scariness around eating because every time I think about going no that was fussy eating no that was fussy eating and most times I'm thinking, I'm going, no, that's still fussy eating. This is still very, very different. I wonder if maybe there's not fussy eating. There, there is fussy eating, but it, it maybe not fussy eating. It's, as you said, it's more like control. So my, um, I went and saw my um, my sister and my niece and nephew, and you cannot put ketchup on the food. The food has to be dunked in the ketchup. Oh no, that's not fussy eating. That's not fussy eating. That's <laughs> okay. I thought that was. That just sounds very sensible to me. Well done to your nieces and nephews. Um, a lot of autistic people can eat a range of food, but they won't do it if it touches on the plate. <laughs> so it, it's how do you explain this? Um, it, it's it's to do with the way. So autistic people have brains that systematize very well. They sort things right and wrong, safe and dangerous, good and bad this like binary level of thinking and when you've got the chips on their own they are chips chips are fine when you have the peas on their own they are peas peas are fine if you have chips and peas together this is not the same thing this is not chips now this is not peas this is not fine this is not okay this is not safe so I've seen plates that are really successful where they look like a little clock with different segments and you put the different parts of the meal and none of the meal touches and that's like a lot of autistic people's dream is to have a meal that doesn't touch the other parts of the meal and then they would eat it. And then if you want your chip to have ketchup on, you could put it into the ketchup. But if it already has ketchup on, I feel, I know I sound like a mad person. No, no, this is, this is not you making this up. I have seen this with my nieces and nephews. I said to my nephew, do you want some mayonnaise? He went, yes. So I put it on his plate and I turned around. I was like, uh-oh. I've done this wrong. <laughs> and it was on the wrong side of the plate. Because he uses his right. So literally, I'm going, that makes no sense. We can just, nope, it was done. I would never put ketchup over my chips, but I would dip my kips, chips into ketchup. But that, yeah, that is kind of, that's not really, a, well, I think food touching is like I said, it's more of an order thing. It's more of a rule-based logic. 
so the, yeah, so the difference there is the stuff that I was describing is the sensory challenges. There aren't sensory challenges associated with eating the chips or eating the ketchup. It's the way that your brain thinks about these things. And it's quite common um, for eating to be a slightly stressful experience because there are expectations around how much you will eat. There's things to do with knowing whether you're full and knowing whether you're hungry that can be very different for neurodivergent people. And so if you are, if you're encountering a situation that's a bit worrying, you want to make sure that you get it right because then it's going to be okay. And the way that that thinking works of things being good or bad, right or wrong, safe or dangerous, overlaps itself. So I think I remember saying to you before that I have a right way to eat a digestive biscuit. Is that, does that ring bells? So I have a right way to eat, a di- I have a right way to eat all the foods that I eat and a wrong way. And if I eat the digestive biscuit right, then the biscuit is safe and I am good. But if I were to eat it wrong, the biscuit would be dangerous and I would be bad. So I, I would like, my self-esteem would be damaged by eating my biscuit wrong. So what is the correct way of eating a digestive? And is it, are we talking a chocolate digestive? <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've already told you. Well, you should remember by now, Dale. <laughs> um, digestive biscuits are a wonderful shade of beige, which along with a lot of autistic people, I appreciate beige food, except for the edge of them that's the flat edge down the bottom because they're like curved and then there's like a corner that goes around the bottom is a bit darker so you need to get that off first and then so you nibble that off and then they have little holes around the rim you asked you remember (laughs) you bite the holes off and then the, the edge is now not even so now you have to even off the edge then the next thing you've got is the writing so you eat the writing off and then really they've done this wrong so if people from digestive biscuit happen to be listening one side of the writing has got three holes and the other side's only got two and it should be three on both sides but it's not so it doesn't match so you bite off the extra hole and then they're both two but you're still sad that they weren't both three because three would have been better so then you eat off both the two holes smooth it down you've just got the little word mcvitties across the middle and you can eat that letter by letter that is the correct way to eat digestive biscuit. now there are two types of listeners ones who are going yes i think think there might be few and far between yep and the other bot's going what she didn't dunk it in tea (laughs) i personally like digestives with butter on oh i I know but i i know somebody i think who would be with you on that is it you used to get them in the crackers yeah and i love it because you get that nice dry crunchy digestives but you have the creamy butter it's a good combination It's a happy sensory mix. Then there's a whole conversation of um, with chocolate digestives, which way up do you eat it? I, yeah, I know what you mean, because if you turned it upside down, the chocolate would be on your tongue, which is a good idea, but it would be upside down. Yes, so I, I have a rule where the chocolate was put on, so that's therefore that's now the top. So that has to go in that way. And I was going, but the chocolate's the tasty bits on the bottom. And I'm going, no, because they put the chocolate on top. I think these things are, they sound like a tangent, but actually they're, an insight into how you approach these things with neurodivergent children and it uh, the dismissal of fussy eating is wrong of us because it's probably people who've got a lower level of sensory challenge who are just expressing that it's it's very unlikely to be little three-year-olds thinking oh i know i will manipulate my mother it's not going on if, if you're sitting there and you've got a fussy eater and you're hearing Joanna's description of eating a digestive and thinking she's mental. <laughs> You've got to think that there are lots of people who think in that way, who will literally find a pack of a hula hoops and eat all the hoops first, then decide what to do with the broken ones. And lots of things like that. There's literally, there are so many rules to food, which some people have no idea. You have to eat them in certain numbers. I, I eat my sweets in certain numbers, patterns. And I have rules for the sets of sweets that don't obligingly fit those number patterns. When, when you have like a bag of like Skittles or fruit pastels. Yeah, Skittles are one of those ones because they only have five colours. Do you mix the flavours together? No. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you have to sort them. Oh, I'll have three yellows. I'll have three greens, yeah. And you might be going, no. Yeah, and you're right that it's three. And you yeah. might be going, they all taste the same. We'll agree to disagree. <laughs> but... So I I am 
in some ways, I'm a story of hope because I am a child who only ate beige. Um, I only ate bread and ketchup sandwiches for a good deal of life. Um, so it's amazing how much you know body structure you can grow out of a limited diet. Um, but if you look at how people like me begin to diversify their diets, I think it's a more useful clue than if you assume a neurotypical model. Because what happens to those fussy eaters like me who only eat beige is that they are encouraged using a little by little narrative. Just try a little bit of this. Just try a little bit of this. And if you were a, a typically developing child who'd looked at the green spinach and thought, oh, it looks green and slimy. I don't want to try it. And then somebody's gone, I'll just try a little bit. And like, okay, I'll just try a little bit. After a while, you'd go, oh, and yeah, actually, that's not so bad. I don't mind if you sprinkle it on my pizza. And that little by little narrative will work for those children because it's just an initial, oh, no, I don't want to try something new, which is a very sensible response because our senses are at a primary level about survival. We are trying to find food. Does that look like food? Does that smell like food? And trying not to be food. Eek, that's a monster. Run away. And that's what our sensory systems are doing. So when you offer the typically developing child broccoli, they look at it and think, that could be poisonous. I don't want to be eating that. I've not eaten any of that before. Broccoli they is know poisonous. That so far in life, they have eaten all of these foods and they are still alive. So these foods are safe. These new foods, one of them could kill you. You don't want to eat any of those new foods. You don't know whether they're safe or not. And so the little by little, you're a little bit, and I, I didn't die. Hmm, maybe this is safe. A few more. To, okay, no. And it just moves it across the boundary. It takes it from being one of the foods that might be bad into a food that I'm familiar with and I'm happy to eat it. That little by little narrative will work for those children. That's not how my brain works. My brain wasn't rejecting the broccoli because it thought it might be new food and dangerous. It, it, it has... It's safe food and dangerous food, but not in the same way. The The rules, I'm, I'm struggling because it's so hard to articulate, but it's something so real in my head. Those, those foods were safe and those other foods were not, and they were not safe for all sorts of different reasons. So like one reason that broccoli would not be safe is it looks different every time. So how could you possibly categorize it into safe or dangerous? Because what I'm encountering every time you offer me broccoli is something totally different. I, I don't get the build-up of the little by little because it's not the same thing to me. You know, the first time you offered me broccoli, it had one head. The next time you offered me broccoli, it had two heads. You know, the, the next time it was slightly bluer on that side. Then it was got... These are different things. My brain is not grouping these things. These are new every time. You, you say, you know, have some spaghetti bolognese, but the recipe is slightly different every time you cook it. No, I can't categorize that. I have no idea where that fits. I'm sticking with these foods. These are safe. You said your nephew would only eat a particular brand of ketchup. Very sensible, that boy. Because that's that, you know, and that will be the same every time. So he can categorize that. These are my safe foods and I won't eat any of the others. Because certain foods, generally, I'm thinking quite heavily processed chocolate. Yeah. Sausages. They tend to be the ones, don't they? McDonald's chips was the example I gave earlier. They're generally something which will always be identical. Yeah, that's the clue. Whereas anything vegetable-esque yeah. could be different every time. The carrot, different yeah. size, different shape. Anything home-cooked, yeah. not reliable. So I, I, I'm trying to work out, because there's certain food, I would say it's not a sensory thing, it's more of a rule and a control thing. But then even now when the control and everything's gone, I still won't eat it. So and as an adult, you can go, not get me near broccoli. Don't You're allowed to not like some foods. But no, it's, it's beyond that. It is if you've strained the broccoli in the colander, <laughs> we've now got to wash it before we put the peas in there. Yeah. I do not want any hint of broccoli near my peas. <laughs> broccoli is... The Dirty vegetables over there. Keep it away from me. It's my it's my son's favourite food when he was weaned. So not all children. But it's but I wouldn't have classed it as a sensory thing. I don't know what I've classed it as, but I've got a load of food in my head, and a lot of it is fruit, which I think might be a texture thing. But I just will not touch, even as an adult. Yeah, mm. but food, I maybe didn't come across as a child. 
Yeah. Which could be similar. I'll dive in. Asparagus. I did not remember having that as a child. I'll eat asparagus. But yeah. I won't eat broccoli. They're not a million miles apart. <laughs> no. So I ate a, a very um, limited diet. And when it changed, it changed, first of all, because I chose it. So I don't think any amount of people, you know, coaxing me, pressurizing me, um, persuading me that if I take a bite of this, I can have a pound or I can go to the cinema or I don't think any of that, no matter how big those rewards were or how scary those punishments were, I don't think any of that would ever have had any effect on me. The decision to eat something that's not currently one of my safe foods is mine and only I can take it. And I wonder if there's a sort of pressure release from people who feel like they should be pushing their children over those boundaries that you can't. <laughs> it's not. It, the child will make that decision. And my <laughs> my gateway food was Monster Munch. I used to eat Monster Munch at university and I used to eat pickled onion flavoured Monster Munch. And I remember flavor. sitting there one evening thinking, well, if I like pickled onion Monster Munch, maybe I would like pickled onions. <laughs> so so my, my, my start was crisps, which are exactly the same every time, to pickled onions, to onions, to eating onions in food. And it goes that way. And that's another um, indication of a difference. If it was a fussy eating child, who I'm beginning to think as we talk are just imaginary children, but let's pretend they're out there. You wouldn't start with pickled onions. You'd go here, have this, you know, bread, it's got a little bit of something on it. You'd go with a really bland flavour first. Whereas actually some of the really bold flavours, like your your nephew was spicy ketchup, wasn't it? Pickled onions. These are actually easier for people like me to deal with as a start out um, sensory message than some of the blander flavours. So I know quite a few stories of children who's like, they've not eaten anything and then they've eaten, yeah, I don't know, the hot sauce or something yeah. like that. But I think I think with um, pickled onions and some monster munch, you've got the tang and a crunch. Yeah. And then you eat a pickled onion and you get the tang, but there's still something to bite through. Yeah. Whereas if you'd put that pickled vinegar on a piece of bread, when here's some soft bread. I will now drink vinegar. Okay. But to me, <laughs> vinegar on bread is nothing. I like pickled beetroot. I like pickled beetroot on Philadelphia on a cracker. I feel like we're doing a cooking show now. I'm not sure about beetroot. It's a bit too mud-flavoured. So you've got a crunchy cracker, the creamy filly, and then a tangy lovely. But, it, yeah, it's it, it's you, you kind of it is the randomness of food. Well, also, do you remember we were talking about the development of the senses in the last one? The start point to eating are... Um, First of all, it's mostly to do with smell because your actual taste um, is a very basic sense. But it's sweet things and then you've got um, salty things and fatty things. It's like a guide to unhealthy eating because it's what your body craves. Um, and it's the, the sweet is you're all born with a sweet tooth. And then the salty is like the comparison to that, like the black to the white of, of food. But we are in terms of our sensory capacities, we're, we're doing all of this sensing in order to survive. It's finding food and not becoming food. And there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on in the brain around that so that when you find the food, you stay and eat it. And so if you imagine the you know, early man wandering around the African plains, he's mostly living off nuts and berries and things like that. And then once in a blue moon, somebody kills the a wildebeest or something and you've got some meat and this is your protein source this is your your survival your muscular growth for the next three months or something if you were as you're gathering around the carcass and eating it up if you were to run away because you heard a twig snap then it's no good because 
you're not likely to encounter this protein source again for a long while. And so the brain has a, a hormone that's released in response to biting and chewing that is deeply calming. Because when you bite into that carcass and you chew it up, so it's like proper bite. It's not just like chewing your food normally. It's a proper bite. It's the, le it's the level of bite that's needed to tear meat off the bone when you've been hunting. Is that sort of bite. It releases a chemical in the brain that's very calming because the, the body, you know, the, the survival instinct of the organism wants you to stay there. So as you're biting into that carcass, you've got to be really calm and you've not got to worry about little twigs snapping in the bushes around you because you've just got to stay here. And the same for the chewing. That chewing sensation is reassuring to the body because your body is going, oh, it's all right. I've got food. I've got food. I'm eating. I have a Labrador. He's happy for about 60 seconds a day, 30 seconds in the morning when he eats his breakfast and 30 seconds in the afternoon when he eats his dinner. And it's only when he's in the process of eating that he thinks, ah, oh, great, I'm being fed. He don't, I don't think he experiences that at any other time of the day. But for us, chewing is sending a message that's going, it's okay, it's okay, I'm eating something. This means I'm surviving. And so snacking is quite a common phenomena amongst people who are stressed because and you could be stressed because you're a neurodivergent person living in a neurotypical landscape you could be stressed because you're an anxious person you could be stressed because work's really pressured there's lots of reasons why we might be stressed when we're stressed we like to eat constantly because if you're chewing something if you're in the process of eating your body's going it's okay i'm surviving it's okay i'm surviving so it's it's reassuring to you and so to go back to where i started the big bite and the really strong chew send calming messages. And so if you were looking for food that might be slightly more calming to eat than one that's not, you know, the typical start point for the fussy eater is like, oh, it's just a little bit of mashed potato with just a bit of ketchup in. There's no bite there, is there? There's no chew there. There's nothing reassuring about that from a sort of physical landscape of eating it. So you quite often find that children who struggle with eating on a sensory level like things that are crunchy. And the crunch signifies, you know, freshness as safe as well and like to have a strong flavour. Is with like senses, we, you get the smell, you get the taste. The next thing is that texture. And I think crunching is easy to feel. Yeah. Where the nuances of mashed potato, especially when you get to the smash world, which is quite smooth, <laughs> very smooth, there's nothing to really feel. Whereas yeah. if you're eating Monster Munch, that's a big crunch. It's a message. It's a strong message. And also the, the strong flavour goes, it's food. Yeah. It's got food. So rather than trying to get mashed potato, offer your children Monster Munch. I think that's <laughs> the message of this whole podcast. Sponsored um, by Monster Munch. If you want to send but, boxes to me and Joe, those who make Monster Munch crisps, oh, we'll yeah. powerfully accept them. If you want to send us Monster Munch, that's a great Pickled idea. onion only for me. So I know a little girl who got very interested in watching fast food adverts on TikTok. She watched these fast food adverts over and over again whilst not eating, you know, anything at home. And then on a, on a Friday, she said to her dad, I, I don't know what it was. It was, you know, I want the McNugget meal from KFC or something like that. And, you know, she, this is a girl who doesn't eat food. She certainly doesn't ask for food. And they were like, okay. And they drove her to KFC and they paid for the meal. And they gave her the meal and she ate the lot. Because she'd done the putting of it into that safe category purely by watching it on television. She didn't have to do it by eating it. She'd, she'd gone through, and adverts are perfect for that because they repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And it looks, you know, safe and nice. And you can watch the 30 second advert over and over again. And that was her way of shifting that category. And I was going through my head as I went for a run before we recorded this podcast. I was thinking of all the places that food comes up in, you know, <laughs> I was thinking of um, Banana Man. Do you remember? And Eric eats a banana. 29 Acacia Road. That's it. Just just what, play them loads and loads of Banana Man <laughs> and go, fancy a banana. <laughs> That's the thing. We had lots of random things like that. Poddington peas. 
Yeah. Lots of yeah, random. Yeah, it's, it's around, but it doesn't have to be through the act of eating itself that these foods get categorised into the safe option. I was wondering how much if, again, you're not sitting there going, mmm, I'm really enjoying this, would you like some, very obvious, to you actually as a parent just eating, I'm going to say garlic bread. <laughs> well, again, crunchy, bit of flavour. If they see you eating it and you're constantly eating it and you're constantly happy, does that can influence someone who's a fussy eater? I I would say yes, but I'm wondering if that is a more socially aware fussy eater. So if that is a good method of maybe supporting neurotypical children who might have that social awareness to go, oh, that's working for you, might work for me, a we're a similar thing. If you're parenting across a neurodivide, that might be different. A nice thing I've seen people do is leave out grazing trays. So one of the rules around eating is that it has to happen at a specific time in a specific place. And, and we're sort of thwarting all those rules. And you leave out a tray of just little things and there's no pressure to eat any of it. And it's a, it's a, you're providing a landscape where they can make that choice. Do you remember I said it was only ever me who was going to choose, you know, who's, it's going to come from me. If I'm in a world where there's these little options all around me, then there's an invitation to make that choice. But nobody's making me make that choice. We watched a program called um, Eat Well for Less. I don't know if you've seen it. Yes. Um, yes. You, and then um, your shopping is surprisingly cheaper than it was before. Yes. Yeah, so staying away from brands. It was brilliant. And one of the things which yeah. really worked for us was they did um, couscous. Mm -hmm. which I like and my wife So good, they named it twice. Yes. <laughs> and they said, what you do is you make a big bowl of couscous, flavour it with a stock cube. We often actually use a couple of dessert spoons of korma curry paste. It gives it a nice mm. flavour. But then we put bowls of different vegetables, spring onions, pepper, um, well, various other things, and we go help yourself. Yeah. No pressure. Yeah. But they can reach in and you'll see that one of them will get a few bits and put it in the corner of their bowl. Yeah. And then they can have a tiny little bit of that with that and go, no. And that's what I think. But often what they'll do is they'll eat it afterwards. They don't eat it together. It's I have my couscous and I have my vegetables. But it just gave them that element of control and they had more veg doing it that way than us putting it on the plate. Yes. And I do think there is an element of with that fussy eating control, as you said at the beginning. Yeah, well, all of that control stuff comes from fear, doesn't it? If if some if a child is trying to exert control over an adult, it's or over a situation, it's not because they're a little dictator and they they've got, they've got delusions of grandeur and they want to lead lead the household. It's because something's scary to them. And when we feel scared, we want to be more in control. So, yeah, just being allowed to serve yourself is a great option. Yes. And um, my last bit of mentioning broccoli is my mum used to try and make me eat the broccoli, which never worked. <laughs> I would eat, especially if we had it with mashed potato, what I'd end up doing is eating most of the mashed potato and then kind of putting the mashed potato over the broccoli. So it looked like I'd eaten the broccoli, but left the mashed potato. Yeah. I don't think your mum was fooled. <laughs> Um, and then when it got really extreme is I would, when she wasn't looking, I'd pick the broccoli up off my plate and put it in my pocket. And then I'd go to yeah. my room and launch it out the window. <laughs> yeah. And all I've learned from this is my children are probably going to be just as devious. <laughs> children are very clever and creative and they are problem solvers. That's, yes. That's all those skills. You want it off my plate? I don't want to eat it. My pocket will take this hit and sacrifice itself. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of the parents who might be listening who have those children who don't eat, you know, hardly anything at all or the schools that are supporting those children. And my thing that I said at the start about you break this down into the different sensory components and you work your way through them, you know, so that you're touching the wet clay whilst listening to the sound of eating, you know, you're building it up in this long, slow scale. That's that sounds lovely when you're a lady on the radio, doesn't it? It's no use when you need to feed your child tonight. Um, so a lot of people give multivitamins as well. 
A lot of those children are very wise to that. I, I knew a young man whose mum would crush the multivitamin and hide it in a chip. And, and she was so good. She would she would slice open the chip with a scalpel. She'd put the little bits of multivitamin inside. She'd show you the plate of chips, go, can you tell which chip it is? And you'd look, you know, I can't, I can't tell, I can't tell. He would eat every chip on the plate apart from that one. It's <laughs> every time. Um, so it can be very, very tricky. But if you're looking for food substances that are um, non-challenging, beige things, things like the... Um, What's that program? The Huel program, like total human yes. meal supplement things. If you can get something like that going in, then you you buy yourself a lot of nutritional time to work through the other things. But it's interesting. It's always beige food, isn't it? Yeah, because if you are overwhelmed by your sensory world, when I went through that stuff earlier, I went touch, sound, smell, taste. The other thing is vision. At least if you can make it look the same, you know, at least that's one thing off the table. And that's something I know a lot of autistic people aim to control just to make it easier is like, I'll, I'll eat the beige stuff. <laughs> I had I had a beautiful young man in my class who used to take apart his food and and I used to watch him do it. I was bewitched by him doing it. He would he would sit there at the dinner table. And just he'd got very lovely, long, thin sort of piano playery fingers. And he would take part all of his food on his plate and then he would organize it into the colors. And then he would eat exactly the right beige. <laughs> and I thought it was lovely. And I got taken aside by my um, management and they went, Joe, you are supposed to teach him not to do that. I was like, oh, oh. am I? Oh, it's very impressive. He's it's got it's like an artist at work. But I had to be prompted, like, it's not, that's not right eating, Joe. Because I was pretty. <laughs> wow. But, yeah, it's interesting. I, I'll try and think more about, okay, is that fussy eating? I think we should probably chuck out fussy eating. I don't think it's the but, thing. Yeah, I think it is purely that element of control. And then it's the mixing of things I find yeah, really so fascinating. Where things are on the plate matters. Whether you put them on the plate, whose motivation was it? Was it intrinsic motivation or extrinsic motivation? It needs to be intrinsic. So if you were thinking, how can I, because you're the person who's extrinsically trying to motivate them by going, come on, try a little bit. I'll give you, you can watch television if you try a little bit. You're putting those extrinsic motivators onto them. How can you create intrinsic motivation? You know, you want their, you want the want to come from inside them. How can you manipulate that? And the creating the environment with the grazing boards is providing an arena in which it can happen. You then want that environment with the grazing boards to be a really calm and pleasant. So they're not in a stress state. So they're in a, I can, you know, I could try something, you know, you know, because you don't try something new when you're fraught. How could you get the ideas into their head? You know, that little girl who was watching fast food adverts, there's a clue there, isn't there? You're like, hmm, what, how can I sort of subliminally message you? How can I give you these ideas? The component parts of the ideas that you will then have yourself that become this, oh, I might try this next thing. I, we had an interesting thing. My daughters do not like being mixed. They're all separate. Pasta in one bowl, bolognese in another. Yeah. Um, they're in secondary school, so we're not young. We're not young kids. We're in secondary school. We're still like fine, quite happy. You're eating. I'm forty two, and when I go to the restaurant, I'm very clear with the waiter that I want my chips to come out dry, and it's such a confusing order. Like they're topped chips. I was like, yep, I would like the chips on their own. I'll have all the toppings. That's fine. They can be in a bowl. They can all be touching each other, but the chips need to be on their own. <laughs> and we were going to a friend's house for dinner, and we're like. They're going to cook lasagna. And I was like, oh, I went, no, I'm not going to tell my kids. We're going to go there and they'll sit down at dinner time and go, oh, it's lasagna. But one of them helped make it as well, which I think was really good. So they yeah. helped make the lasagna. They sat down and looked at the end of the table and they both eaten their lasagna, which they would not do at home. They would not touch it at all. Yeah. But it was partly they made it, partly that everyone else was doing it, and partly they've got to that age where they've gone, I'm supposed to eat this, it's polite. 
Yeah. They've got that in their head. Yeah. A week later, one of them cooks it for dinner. Once it's in the safe category, you're fine, aren't you? You're away. Yeah. Yeah, I eat loads more foods now than I used to. But it's how it's introduced. My own devices, I eat the same dinner every night. Which is just out of curiosity. Um, it's chopped lettuce with tomato and cucumber, and then I vary toppings. See, I, I get called boring. I will literally have the same breakfast and same lunch every day because I don't have to think about it. Yeah, yeah, I have the same breakfast and lunch every day. I've, I've, I didn't say that one because I figured that one was normal. <laughs> no, apparently it's not. <laughs> is it not? No. Um, do people have different breakfasts? Yeah. Do they? How do you do that? So, like, so early in the morning for change. I yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'll have two Weetabix. Oh, I need to Porsche have control. It's this. I have my noodles for lunch. It's, it's sent. I don't, I don't even have to think about it. My mind is on other things. I'd never considered that people have different breakfasts before. Oh, do I have toast this morning? Do I have cereal? What do I feel like? I might do an omelette. It's like, that's a lot of decision making early in the morning. And yeah, that sounds, that's a whole different world for me. No, my wife will just go, oh, I have porridge this morning. No, just, that's breakfast. But we're all different. Well, there's neurodiverse and non-neurodiverse. <laughs> but it is, I think everyone's, thinks that their relationship with food everyone kind of has the same relationship so when your child's struggling with food if you didn't then what works for you won't won't help them it is it is a separate thing and it's unpicking it all i think it's useful to go and find the adults that children like your child came and find out how how we got there you know, speaking as the child who only ate beige and who now eats lots of different things, I I would be curious to find, you know, the other versions of those adults. So there's one thing you haven't said in this podcast. You wrote in the document you sent me Ooh. for this podcast. Can you remember what that might be? No. Apparently it's such a great phrase, we have to say it. Such a great I don't even know is what it this is. Ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. That's normally my great phrase. No, and I'm no idea what okay. that is. And I'm... Uh, did I write the great phrase in the document? Retronasal tasting. Oh yes, retronasal tasting is brilliant. Yeah, what? I do it on people <laughs> on the um, sensory lexiconry. Uh, it's it's a demonstration of how pathetic your sense of taste is. Um, so your sense of taste, you only taste five flavours. You taste sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and unami. Everything else that you taste comes to you through your sense of smell. And this used to be something I had to explain a lot. And since the pandemic, a lot of people understand this a lot more than they used to, because a lot of people have had the experience of losing your sense of smell. And when you lose your sense of smell, eating is boring because it's just five flavours. And it's not. it's really weird. If you if you seal off your nose as you eat, you become so much more aware of the textual component of your food. You you suddenly feel these lumps of stuff inside your mouth that you're moving around with your tongue and your teeth, and it becomes much weirder. Um, so without your smell, you don't taste any you know anywhere near as much stuff. If you're somebody who's struggling with the amount of flavour, actually holding your nose and eating is one way of sorting the problem out. Because it re- remarkably reduces the amount of flavour that you're having to deal with. People who go into later age, your sense of smell is one of the senses that um, degrades quite rapidly. So a lot of older people don't have as good sense of smell. And so eating becomes really boring. And then you have in old people's care homes, lots of difficulty with getting residents to eat because they're not interested in eating. And at the same time as eating becomes dull, you get served plates of like warm mush. So there's no sensory interest in it either. You want, if if you've lost the interest, you know, if, if somebody's listening and they've lost their sense of smell through COVID, and you're trying to be interested in eating dinner, a dinner where something's crunchy, something's runny, something's hot, something's cold, something's sticky, it's going to be slightly more interesting to eat than just a load of stuff that all tastes the same. And for those people who may have lost their sense of smell through COVID, there is another sensory system that comes into your face through your trigeminal nerve, which is, I just did a a line down the centre of my face, but we're on radio, not camera. Um, It's like, it's in the 
it's in your tear ducts and it's in your nasal linings, it's in, it's in your mouth. And it's the sensory system that deals with spice and, and heat flavors. So like black pepper or chili are actually all processed by this sensory system, not your sense of taste. And so sometimes if you've had your sense of smell knocked out or your sense of taste knocked out, you might still be able to get these flavours. So I, I know a few people who've lost their sense of smell through COVID who are like, I really like curry at the moment because it's the only thing that's really registering. And then to do just one more little detour, because a lot of people have had this experience, there is research um, done around other conditions that involve smell loss that has shown that practising your smelling can help you to regain your sense of smell quicker. So what they advise in those studies is that twice a day you sniff contrasting scents. And so I have the sensory shed in my back garden, which is a big shed that's full of all of my amazing sensory resources. I've got a lot of different smells in my shed. And I've been making people up these smell kits of like 12 diff contrasting smells I've had um, you know like lavender and lemongrass peppermint and coffee and different things in these little pops and I say to them just keep it by your toothbrush and every night you know as you brush your teeth just smell one smell another even though you can't actually smell anything because you do it the idea is that the exercising of that sensory system helps it to come back sooner um, and the the retro nasal tasting is is just a way of experiencing this absence of um smell in your eating I do it's best it, I don't think it would work on the radio it works really well when you've got a huge hall of delegates like if you've got like a couple of hundred people in the room and I do it with uh the pride skittles you know when skittles take away their rainbow because the only rainbow that counts is the pride rainbow so you get these white skittles so nobody knows what flavor skittle they've got you have to hold your nose so you completely seal off your sense of smell put the skittle in your mouth and start chewing and all you really experience is sweet because you're only using your taste. So you've got sweet, sour, salty, bitter, umami. You just like the generic sweetness and the kind of claggy crunchiness of the Skittle, which you'd never noticed before. And then you say to everybody, take, let go of your nose. And the whole room goes, oh, <laughs> like, mine's lemon, mine's strawberry. And the, the flavor is so strong as you release your sense of smell to engage with your eating. Um, so it's, it's using them in conjunction makes for a bigger experience, which for us can be fun, but for some people could be sensorily overwhelming. Wow. I won't even ask, what was the other phrase? <laughs> Ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. It's a great phrase, isn't it? It means the development of a species mimics the development of the species in the womb. So uh, we, <laughs> this is not what you need to know. We start off in the womb as single cell organisms. We started off in a primeval soup as single cell organisms. We, um, we, there's a point in the womb when we actually have gills. And we were fish before we moved on land. You get a little tail, you get fur. <laughs> All of the things, everything that we've gone through as a species is mimicked by the development of species in the womb. Ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Wow. Always a lesson with Joe. <laughs> Not necessarily the one you were hoping for. But they're all the ones I love. They're the ones when you're at school, you learn something which isn't in the curriculum, but your teacher's interested or something. They're the ones. Um, the longest word I know is anti-establishmentarianism. Yes, anti-disestablishmentarianism. Yeah, we had if somebody told. Yeah, I my remember year that eight science teacher that. taught me that, and he's always stayed in my memory. Nothing to do with the <laughs> curriculum. It was just somebody he was passionate about stuff, and he taught us this word. It wasn't even a lesson; it was a lunchtime thing. It stuck with me. So, thank you for coming on today, show, today Joanna, and Thanks sharing us me. all your food secrets. <laughs> I'll see if I can remember to bring some uh, Monster Munch to a TSSEN show in October. No, are you going to the um, autism shows? I don't think I am. I don't know. I, I generally don't know what I'm doing. I mean, my calendar knows what I'm doing, but I only know what I'm doing next week. Okay. I'll take some with me then just in case. <laughs> 
Um, thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, please subscribe. You can find links to subscribe across all the different podcast platforms, all on our website, which is www.thesendcast.com. Please follow us on social media, on Twitter, we're at The Sendcast, on Facebook, The Sendcast, and on Instagram, The Sendcast. And please share with us on social media. Tell others what you think of The Sendcast. And before we go, I would just like to remind you all once again to check out the Training for Education website. You will find a number of our guests on The Sendcast, our speakers at our virtual send conferences, or they've recorded their own training courses. Training for Education is a great way to get CPD for all staff around SEND that is effective and affordable. Visit www.trainingforeducation.com for more information. And as an exclusive gift to our Sendcast listeners, you can get 10% discount on the virtual Send conferences, future or past, by using the code Sendcast10. So thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye, everyone. <laughs>